It's fair to say 2022 has been an action-packed year, both politically and economically. There's hardly been pause for breath. So how can someone be expected to take it all in? CityWire selectors sought to widen the net, and in doing so, expanded our audio-led coverage over the past 12 months. From cutting-edge ESG insights to on-the-ground debt discussions, we also profiled major names in portfolio management, and also enjoyed an offhand look at some of the industry's more eccentric career paths. In this snapshot, we'll run you through highlights from our stable of podcasts, all of which can be found on CityWire's Selectors' dedicated channel on all major podcast provider platforms. First up, we head to the emerging world with our own EM insider. Mephro Kassin is never short for something to say, and here he delves into the tricky topic of inflation. He spoke to Crystal Higgins earlier this year about how the developing nations were dealing with this challenge. The order of the day is to sort inflation out. And the latest economic numbers do show two things. They show that there's stubborn inflation at the secondary level, not just uh, oil prices. Uh, But also they show that economic growth hasn't yet started to topple, right? So for inflation to to be contained and and constrained, we need some economic pain because you know this, right? Nobody, you get your bonus, let's say, or you get your salary uh, and you're not going to go out and buy something at the, you know, at the top. top oh, let's, let's put it a simple way. You're not going to buy a house in Chelsea uh, for 4 million pounds. If you think that things are going to go down, the economy will, will suffer and you're going to be able to buy this house at 3 million, right? And the seller, and, and I'm just using numbers, you know, I'm not saying I'm doing that. Um, but but the seller is thinking the same way. You know, he sees that he's not going to get so many people uh, earning, uh, earning on their salaries, earning bonuses. So these people are likely not going to be able to buy houses as easily for $4 million. So he will drop his price to three and three quarters, maybe three and a half. And if interest rates go up, it will be more difficult for the non-cash buyer, right? The, the buyer who goes to the bank to borrow, uh, to get money, to borrow money at an attractive rate. Uh, higher rates means higher payments. So that's, that's the way the Fed, the, Euro, the, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of England will deal with this with this situation. So it they need to nip it in the bud. ESG has faced a challenging year in many ways. The once bulletproof reputation of sustainable investing has come under close scrutiny as tougher questions are now being asked. Our series Let's Talk About ESG probes some of the more intriguing areas to understand what fund selectors and investors are really concerned about. In this extract, Marguerite Kirakosian spoke to the former head of impact investing at Credit Suisse and Ackerman about how investor priorities in this environment have been changing. Taking the conversation back to regulations, what I find interesting is that, of course, we have Article 6, that is all managed products, Article 8, which is promoting uh, environmental and social characteristics, and Article 9, which has sustainability as its investment objective. Uh, We started hearing increasingly more that CEOs of asset management companies are coming out saying, well, Article 6 funds are now effectively legacy funds. Well, now, that's not quite backed up by the flows yet, but I was wondering, what is your take as a fund selector on this? Do we really see Article 6 funds being frozen out of the investment universe? 
for sure we see a huge focus on sustainability increase in you know in the last few years um this leads to distributors manufacturers focus on developing their sustainable offering um and obviously there is also more demand on the investor side um as you you say rightly uh the flows you know are not going to sustainable strategies but we still see a shift uh on the demand side on the investor side uh you know really i think more and more people are now um somehow aware of you know the importance uh their investments can have that you should align your investments perhaps to your personal values or the power you can have as an investor to also make a change um and hence we see also more demand um this will more certainly increase so yes it can feel that if you're not offering you know strategies classified as article 8 or article 9 you have little chance uh to sell these funds uh and yes i think that some type of strategies mostly non-sustainable strategies will probably struggle uh to raise funds even perhaps disappear in the coming years but the reality is um it's still not that easy to you know uh, find enough good sustainable funds to build a a diversified portfolio in particular you know to cover specific sectors to cover specific regional allocation uh we still struggle to find good sustainable funds we have to be mindful of that and i think uh just you know take that into account as well when looking at strategies ESG takes many forms which can expand to both diversity and representation citywide's annual alpha female report once again shone a light on the glacial pace of change with women only representing around 12% of fund managers in the global universe. To dig deeper into this report, Crystal Higgins spoke to author Marianne Seaghart, a CityWire's head of cross-border investment research, Nisha Long, to look at how the asset management industry compared to its peers. Spoiler alert, it doesn't come out well. Women are twice as likely as men to say that they have to provide evidence of their competence and are much more likely than men to say that people are surprised at their abilities. And I think this is what lies at the root of the problem, is this default assumption that women are somehow going to be less able and less competent than men, which is quite extraordinary when you see that girls outperform boys at every single educational level from kindergarten right through to PhD. You know, the evidence is there staring us in the face that women are every bit as intelligent as men and on average probably more hardworking and diligent. And Nisha has shown, specifically in the asset management industry, that women perform just as well as men in running money. And in fact, mixed gender teams perform the best of all. So you would have thought that these asset management companies would see that it's in their business interest to have every team be mixed gender, and yet the majority of them aren't. And I just don't understand why they're not following what's in their business interest. Away from the issues occupying current investment thinking, we also used our podcast to take a closer look at historical lessons as well. Suspension of Disbelief was hosted by myself and Neve Doyle and was released over the summer. This two-part series focused on the lead-up to and the aftermath of the Tim Hayward scandal that engulfed Swiss asset manager GAM in the summer of 2018. Four years on, we looked back over what caused controversy and heard from international fund buyers about what they remembered from the time as well as the most important lessons that they now put in place.
a Swiss asset management company with more than 900 employees across the world. It was a shock in that an organisation, you know, you've known for a long time, suddenly turns out to not be everything that you thought it was. Clients including financial advisors, private investors and institutions. For any company, if you lose one-fifth of your share price in a day, in a single few minutes of trading, then you're in trouble. Partnering with some of the most talented investment managers. Unfortunately, this is not uh, the first scandal and probably not uh, the last one. But on the 31st of July 2018, the annual results are released. Just seconds after, the head of their absolute return bond fund unit was suspended, waiting for the investigation. Now, as the scandal marks its four-year anniversary, we want to re-examine what actually happened and what, if anything, has changed since. Helping us with this are some big names in the scandal, including former employees Tim Hayward and Alex Friedman, as well as financial experts. This is GAM, Suspension of Disbelief. Welcome back to the second and final episode with myself, Neve Doyle, and Chris Slowly. This week, we'll be introducing you to two fund selectors, Paul Gambles, who is co-founder of MBMG Group in Thailand, and Pierre Molinero, who sits within the fund selection team of OFI Asset Management in Paris. We got their reactions to the scandal, what it means for absolute return bond funds as an asset class, as well as advice on how future situations can be prevented. We also touched on the importance of reputation and the long-term lessons from this type of misconduct. The crisis was undoubtedly a big shock for many of GAM's investors, even those who had stuck through their profit warnings and other concerns in the lead-up to Tim Hayward's suspension. We spoke to the pair about where they were at the time of the announcement and their initial reactions. First, we hear from Paul Gambles, who admits, while he didn't hold the funds directly, he was surprised by the news, especially as it concerned GAM's reliability. I guess it was, it was um, you know... A a shock in that um, an organization that has, you know, you've known for a long time and that has satisfied due diligence suddenly turns out to, you know, to not be, um, not be everything that you thought it was. I mean, like, I guess, anybody else who does due diligence, we had their, uh, their conflict of interest policy, you know, on file, tick the box to say we had it. And so it's, it's a shock when you find out that, um, you know, you've, um, you've gone to the effort of, uh, of obtaining somebody's uh, COI policy and, and then they're not actually following it. So, yeah, I guess, you know, it was, it was, um, it was, it was distressing to find out that, uh, that an organisation that we knew uh, and that we respected was, was you know, been found, or, or certainly at that stage suggested, and subsequently found uh, to, be, uh, to be in breach. Our deep dive into GAM wasn't the only topic-specific podcast of 2022. The Spanish market has spent many years in the thrall of just one man, Francisco Garcia Panamez. Sometimes known as the Spanish Warren Buffett, Panamez earned a stellar record as an equity investor at Best Invest before relations soured and he went out on his own. In our one-off special, The Paramus Paradigm, Daniel Ruiz heard from former colleagues and commentators about the long shadow of the man known affectionately as Paco. Here's Daniel's intro from the episode that was published last month. It's early in year 2000. The world hasn't ended, as many wrongly predicted, and the frenzy for technology stocks remains as hot as temperatures in the beaches of Palo Alto. The internet is taking over the world, and the Nasdaq index keeps reaching new record highs. 
A couple of years earlier, the Globe.com had been the first online social network going public, with a market cap of $840 million, at the time the biggest IPO in history. Shares were initially at $9, climbing all the way to $97 before closing at 63.5 that day. But a 37-year-old man sat in an office in Madrid was not impressed. He believed that an eventual huge decline in valuations was in the making since 1998, precisely the year when the pair of youngsters managing the globe.com reached a net worth of $100 million each. During this time, Paramez struggled to find, in his view, fairly valued companies. He decided to avoid banks and tech, dipping in oil and other value-oriented stocks, but mostly focusing on small and mid-cap companies that were falling under the radar of those trying to benefit from the rally. If in doubt, Paramus preferred not to be invested. He saw how clients questioned his job and even suggested where to invest. It was what he calls in his book the euphoria at the end of the cycle, the one which can only be defeated with time and patience. He had to personally visit clients to put them at ease and prevent them from making any risky moves. However, some left, and for the first time in his career, he had to hold his ground and trust his method over the noise from outside. The pressure was such that this was the only time Paramus thought twice about managing other people's money. It's worth remembering that this is the time when Terra, a subsidiary of telecommunications group Telefonica, now the second largest company in Spain behind Santander, got to be worth almost more than the parent firm. Everything internet was trading at ridiculously expensive multiples, even though these companies weren't making a penny. This is Miguel Moreno Mendieta, reporter for Spanish financial newspaper Cinco Dias for the past 18 years. To his point, Terra's IPO market cap was 3.5 billion euros. Three months later, it peaked at 47.7 billion. That's more than Spanish blue chips, Repsol and BBVA. 1999 was a big party for the Nasdaq Composite. The index ended the year with a 65% rise, following a 56% increase a year earlier. The outcast Paramez saw his Spain-focused strategy best informed fall 11%, while the Best in Bear International Fund dropped 15%. However, everything started to fall apart in March 2000. Since 1995, the index had gained 400%, reaching a now laughable record high. However, it failed to reach 5,000 points earlier in the year. With valuations as stressed as possible, it was every man for himself. By the end of the year, the Nasdaq had fallen 38%, with the best in fund strategy rising 13% and the best in bear international fund up 18%. To prove this was no lucky charm, a year later the Nasdaq fell 14%, while Best in Fund rose 20% and Best in Bear International gained 17%. I think these returns were praised by the Spanish industry. He knew how to dodge this massive sell-off and perform better than his competitors. The way he was positioned was no news when everything collapsed. He had been warning for months in his quarterly reports about the absurd valuations of tech stocks. This big win saw Best Inver's inflows increase substantially, eventually managing more than 10 billion euros, which is quite remarkable for an independent firm. In fact, none of the other firms that were born after his departure from Best Inver have ever seen such numbers. This would be the first time Paramez successfully defied the market. But how did he do it? How could a manager with just under 10 years of experience could have foreseen one of the greatest stock crashes in history? Paramez wasn't the only big name to come under close attention from CityWire Selector. Over the summer, I caught up with GMO founder and famed market commentator Jeremy Grantham. In a conversation that took in his disdain for private equity, which he called a license to steal, 
as well as his thoughts about being an early adopter of climate abating attitudes, it's fair to say he is passionate about making the right calls at a tough time. On that point, I think one thing that really stood out for me as well is, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said that investors need to rid themselves of FOMO. How much is FOMO also a factor within super bubbles and driving that sort of market dynam- dimension? They are the most extreme points of investor psychology, where you buy into the idea that markets only go up. And probably this was the most extreme case. The, the most extreme faith that stock markets only go up and any setbacks are temporary and inconsequential, which of course just ain't so. Uh, setbacks are multi-years, incredibly painful, and almost everybody in the FOMO category would not stand the pain and will check out. Is there a huge psychological shift then that needs to happen in markets, or is this just the nature of markets? Will we cyclically, because you mentioned there 1929, 1972, 2000, generation upon generation, will we constantly fall into these cycles? Is that just the nature of the market? I think humans are vulnerable to these waves of excessive optimism. I think in, in a perfect world, well-led, with a, with a sensible Fed and good signals being put out, you might be able to go for the best part of, of a couple of generations without having a Super Bowl. But in a world where rates are low, speculation is encouraged, asset prices are rising because the rates are coming down, then you're going to have more than your fair share of these crazy moments where everybody believes the Fed is behind them and they can't lose. And that was classically uh, what last year and the year before represented. Not everyone who ends up as star manager started life wanting to be that way. In our series Breaking and Entering, Daniel Ruiz unearthed people with unlikely origin stories to uncover what led them to the world of fund management. In this episode from April, Daniel spoke to Chris Ford, who now runs an AI-focused fund at Sandland. Chris revealed how his training as a classical musician and musicologist had played into his understanding of what really makes an investment sing. Have you ever heard the word echomusicology? Do you remember the time when pop legend Prince changed his name to a symbol? Did you know that music is actually all about maths? The answer to these questions would normally be in history books and specialist magazines. However, asset management is a vault full of surprises. In this episode, we'll learn how the logic of a Bach cantata is applicable to finance and why silence is just as essential in music as in stock selection. This is Breaking and Entering. Chris Ford didn't grow up in a market-savvy family, and unlike many others in today's industry, he started working in finance without having set foot on a business school before. That happened years after, when he got an MBA after graduating from university. But before jumping into the world of asset management, the wires and trends that he was following belonged to a completely different world, classical music. 
my family, in their broadest extent, play almost everything. My sister almost single-handedly plays everything. She plays, you know, violin and piano, and uh, she sings. She plays the viola and all kinds of other things as well. My, my, but most of my my family are keyboard players of one sort or another. My father's actually a harpsichordist as well as a pianist, and uh, my grandfather was a was a was a singer. So yeah, it all goes goes back quite a long way. And and so you know, we've been we always used to you know make music together when we were kids at home in the house. Sometimes we'd, we'd, we'd give concerts um, that others in the family were, 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 were performing in. So, yeah, it was, it's, been a, it, it's always been a part of, part of my life. Some may have the Beatles, ABBA or Lady Gaga as their musical mentors, but Chris, naturally, has a different taste if he has to choose. Oh, I'd go Menuhin. He was a great man and a really good teacher and you know, the way he taught people and the people he's left behind are, are quite inspirational, to be honest. Hilary Hahn is a great hero of mine. She's a fabulous, fabulous um, uh, uh, violinist. And um, there's an extraordinary video of her, thank heavens for YouTube, uh, playing the 24th Caprice by, uh, by uh, Paganini whilst um, hula hooping at the same time, which is just the most extraordinary party trick. <laughs> most violinists wow. can't play the Caprices without the hula hoop. The hula hoop really is just taking it too far. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Next up in Breaking and Entering, the fund manager who beat every single trader in New York playing squash. So there we have it. Scandal, scrutiny and a focus on the science of sound. I've been Chris Slowly, wishing you a happy end of year and make sure to check back City Selectors feed for more podcast delights in 2023.